0: Now, friends, we come to the 20th chapter of the book of Proverbs. And as we do, we are proceeding in this section that we have said is so important because, very frankly, it sets before us the wisdom of Solomon. And it's particularly directed, in fact, rather specifically directed to young men. Now, I think it means not only young men, but it means to every Christian today. In fact, unbelievers can learn a great deal from this. I believe that the reading and study of the Word of God will bring you to God, or it'll certainly drive you from Him. It'll have a definite effect upon your life, and it will do just that. Now, as we move on in this, I want to begin today with this first verse, And this was the first time that we've had any warning concerning alcohol or concerning the use of booze, if you please. I like that name for it because that has all the connotation of the evil that liquor and booze has done down through the ages. And I suppose that alcohol has wrecked more homes more nations, more businesses than anything else. There's nothing to compare to it in that particular connection. And it says, wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging, and whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. Now, I personally don't want to get into this controversy again, but it's my... Firm conviction that the Lord Jesus did not make an intoxicating drink at the wedding in Cana Galilee. Now, anyone that tries to make of him a bootlegger there is doing absolutely an injustice. Somebody gives me this argument. Well, you know that in that climate, in that day, that all you had to do was to put that grape juice in a wineskin, and in time it would ferment. Yes, but the Lord Jesus started out with water, and in the matter of a few seconds he had wine. My friend, it didn't have a chance to ferment. No possibility at all. And then you must remember that this was a wedding there in Cana of Galilee, and that in a religious service like that, Everything that had to do with leaven was forbidden and would not have been included at all. And that's the reason that the time of the Passover, the wine could not have been fermented. That would be the working of leaven. And leaven was forbidden in bread, and it would be forbidden in the drink also. The bread and drink could not have been that. So that this thing is condemned in the Word of God. And here is the verse for it. Wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging, and whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. And today, how many folk are being trapped by this sort of thing? America is becoming a nation of drunkards. I do not know about you, but I'm not impressed when the press and the news media always Let us know the tremendous amount of taxes that comes in from the sale of liquor. Well, may I say to you, they always forget to tell you about the hospitals, the insane institutions, and the number of of people that have been maimed for life by a drunken driver. That is not reported today. And I understand that that type of news is suppressed. Because one of your biggest advertisers are the makers of booze. And that today is as bad as drugs. I understand at the very beginning, and I get this from a man that actually is with law enforcement, and I'll not even attempt to identify him. He said to me, he said, You know, at the very beginning, the liquor interests helped fight the drug traffic because of the fact that they were afraid it was going to hurt their business. They'd much rather have a kid become a drunkard of alcohol than become a drug addict. And you know, that sure was generous of the liquor industry. You just can't think of them being so big-hearted. They didn't want the kids to become drug addicts. But they would, you know, make them alcoholics. That is not bad, of course. And as a result, though... They began to see that people were beginning to make the comparison. Several of these youth groups came forward and they made the statement that they didn't feel that if they were going to smoke marijuana, that the crowd that was going to tell them not to do it ought not to be sitting around drinking cocktails. And you know, I felt like those kids had something when they said that. My friend, don't misunderstand me again now. I'm not for smoking marijuana, but I believe that that kid has as much right to smoke marijuana as you have to drink your liquor, my brother. I don't care who you are that's listening today. This idea that you can point your finger at these kids, lets us stop drinking the liquor, then we can talk to our young people about smoking marijuana. I say to you today, the hypocrisy of those outside of the church is lots worse than the hypocrisy that's on the inside of it. This is the thing that was the undoing of Noah. And this is something that from that day to the present hour, liquor has been a menace. Now, don't misunderstand me. Alcohol, if it's used right, is a medicine. But the minute that man transfers it over to the place of a beverage, that's when it becomes dangerous. And the number of alcoholics is increasing every year. It's one of the greatest tax burdens that we have today. But you don't get that through the news. And I'm of the opinion that this program will not be very popular on certain stations. In fact, we may get a notice that we either going to have to change our message or else get off. And may I say to you that It's a dangerous thing to lift your head against this hydra-headed monster that I think probably will bring our nation down. I don't think it's the missile coming over the pole that'll destroy us. I think that it is the liquor that is being sold today that's going to destroy our nation. Now, let me move on to verse 3. It is an honor for a man to cease from strife, but every fool will be meddling. (laughs) And that, my friend, is a very good one. A man who is a man does not want to carry on any kind of a contention or cause strife and continue it. And I think, frankly, that is a good mark of a Christian today. Someone has said the only ones you should try to get even with are the ones who have helped you. Now, try to get even with them, but not try to get even with your enemy. And a smart man will not try to get even with his enemies. And it's a matter of being yielded to God. And as we have said before, that God says, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. And it's on that basis God says, Avenge not yourself. He says you depart from the pathway of faith When you attempt to take this into your own hands, you can't handle the matter. You're not capable of handling it. But God is, and he will handle it. Makes it a very marvelous, wonderful thing. Now, the child of God should remember what Paul said to the Philippians in Philippians 4, 5. Let your yieldedness be known unto all men. And Matthew Arnold called it, says, let your sweet reasonableness be. Be known unto all men. How important that is! Now, verse four: The sluggard will not plow by reason of the winter; therefore shall he beg in harvest and have nothing. Who see in winter time, or when it's cold in that land, doesn't get too extreme. But that's the time to go out and plow your ground and prepare the soil for the spring planting. But they sluggard, the lazy. He says, was too cold. I'll wait till it gets warmer. But when it gets warmer, it's too late then to do your plowing and at the same time do your planting. And there's a note here, I would say, of humor in all of this. He'll not plow by reason of the winter. Therefore shall he beg and harvest and have nothing. Just too lazy to do it. You've heard about the man that had a roof that leaked. And he said that the reason he didn't repair it was because when it didn't rain, he didn't need to fix it. But he says when it was raining and it began to leak, then he'd get wet if he got up there and attempted to fix it. So that's the reason he hadn't done it. Too lazy. Now we come here to a set of Proverbs that are together that to me at first seem totally unrelated. But there is apparently... relationship here that is based on certain words that speak of goodness and that which is right. I would say moral principles that are stated. Now, let me read this whole section here and keep that in mind, and I'll emphasize the word as we go through, and it's in practically every one of the Proverbs, by the way. Verse 6 Most man will proclaim every one his own goodness, but a faithful man who can find. That is, here the word is goodness. And then verse 7, The just man walketh in his integrity. That's your word. His children are blessed after him. Verse 8, A king that sitteth in the throne of judgment scattereth away all evil with his eyes. He scatters evil, you see. Verse 9, Who can say, I have made my heart clean? I am pure from my sin. The word pure again, you see, that occurs here, along with goodness. And then notice, Divers' weights and divers' measures, both of them are alike abomination to Jehovah. That is, that which is false. And then, verse 11, Even a child is known by his doings whether his work be pure and whether it be right. And then, verse 12, "...the hearing ear and seeing eye, Jehovah hath made both of them." And the thought here is, use your head. God's given you eyes, He's given you ears. Listen and look. Look and listen. And that's not only good before you cross a railroad track, but that's good when you're facing life every day. Now, all through this are these moral principles emphasized, and there are two great thoughts here as I see them. First of all, we need to say this. Who can say, I've made my heart clean and pure from my sin? Well, can you? I'm sure that you cannot. No man, by his own efforts, no man can at all claim to be pure. Who would dare to make that kind of claim? Even that little babe in the crib that gets red in the face, that's revealing a temper there. I thought my little grandson at first, he just seemed to be free of sin. He was so wonderful. But I found out, my, he'd get red in the face, hold his breath even. And I thought, you know, that he was not subject to the total depravity of man. But I told My wife, I said, you know, he's beginning to show some of the characteristics of his grandmother. And I'm of the opinion that no one can except one way. If you would be heaven-bound, you must first be heaven-born. Except a man be born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, the Lord Jesus said that to a religious man. We'd call him a good man. Now, no man can answer that question until he's come to Christ and said, I'm clothed now in the righteousness of Christ. I'm accepted in the beloved. But I still have that old heart that I had before. And I have that old nature. But now, will you notice this? That goodness does count. And integrity does count before the throne of God. And purity is worth something. And a child of God is going to walk in a way in which he commands the gospel of the grace of God. Here's a good question. I've heard it for many years. If you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Suppose you were brought up before a court in Russia today. They said, this fellow's a Christian. Would there be enough evidence there to convict you? Or would you be able to get all free and say, Look, look at my life. Well, I didn't live like a Christian. I didn't walk in integrity. There was no goodness in my life, no desire for purity. And God says now, the hearing ear and the seeing eye, God gave you that. God has given you a certain amount of gumption, friends, a certain amount of common sense. God says, open your eyes. God says, unstop your ears. God says, stop, look, and listen. I've got news for you. You can't make yourself pure, but I can give you that standing before God. I can remove the guilt of your sin and then enable you to walk in integrity in this world. This is a fine set of Proverbs, by the way. Now... Verse 13, "...love not sleep, lest thou come to poverty. Open thine eyes, and thou shalt be satisfied with bread." What he's saying here is go to work. And you remember, that's what Paul said to the Thessalonians. If a man doesn't work, he's not to eat. You know, a great many were running out, saying, "...looking for the Lord to come." Now, it's wonderful to look for him to come. But you won't run out and start gazing into space. It's going to cause you to put your nose to the grindstone and work harder than you ever had before. Then here's another one that's good. Verse 14, and this is humorous, and I hope you see the humor of it. Bad, bad, Seth, the buyer, but when he's gone his way, then he boasted. A fellow goes in, you know, to buy something, buy an automobile. And he says, oh, I don't want this car. Look here, tires are not what they ought to be. Look like they're worn. And the motor doesn't sound too good. And there's a rattle back here. Oh, I'll give you so much for it. The man says, all right, I'll sell it. The fellow says, well, I don't think it's worth it, but I'll buy it. Now he gets in the car and he drives home, calls his wife out and the neighbors. He said, look what a bargain I got. You see, man, that's human nature, isn't it? Now we have here verse 15. There is gold and a multitude of rubies, but the lips of knowledge are a precious jewel." Our sense of values today are all wrong. Men today are measured by material things, not by the fact whether they have knowledge or not. Verse 16, "...take his garment that is surety for a stranger, and take a pledge of him for a strange woman." There are certain people that you better have them put up a little collateral. My friend, if you don't, you will sure be taken in. Verse 17, bread of deceit is sweet to a man, but after it his mouth shall be filled with gravel. You may think you're getting by with it, my friend, but you're not, because God's going to see to that. Now, verse 19, he that goeth about as a tale-bearer revealeth secrets. Therefore meddle not with him that flattereth with his lips. The man that flatters you to your face and then goes off and gossips about you You better keep your eye on him. Even when he's a deacon in the church, you better watch him. I was a pastor for a long time. Verse 20, Whoso revileth his father or his mother, his lamp shall be put out in obscure darkness. My friend, if you have a father and mother, you can boast of then boast of them. But if you can't say something good about them, and a lot of folk can't, then don't say anything. That's what this proverb was. You know, that's where Ham made his mistake. His father Noah got drunk. Poor Ham, he exposed it, you see. Should have kept his mouth shut. There's certain things that you just don't run around and tell everything about. Then we want to go down to verse 24. Man's goings are of Jehovah. How can a man then understand his own way? Only the Spirit of God, you see, we can be led. Because we've never passed this way before. God told Moses that. I need to lead you. And God says that to you and me before. And then verse 25, it's a snare to a man rashly to say it's hallowed and after vows to make inquiry. The thing that he's saying here, and we're going to come back to it, don't make a vow until you're sure of what you're going to do. Don't go down in a meeting and dedicate your life till you thought it over, my friend. God doesn't want that kind of a sentimental decision, and there's too much of that today. Then we are told the spirit of man is the lamp of Jehovah searching all the depths of the soul. I don't have time to go into this other than this, that the light is by the oil that's put in the lamp. Man's just a lamp. And until we're filled by the Holy Spirit, we don't become a light. Only the Word of God can give us light. We're just a lamp. And you remember those ten virgins, five of them were foolish. They had lamps, but they didn't have the oil to make the light. That was the big problem that they had. And then let me just mention one other, and that is next to the last. Verse 29, the glory of young men is their strength. And the beauty of old men is the gray hair. The thing is, act your age. A young man is the one to be the athlete. The old man, he better not try to act young. Don't make a fool of himself. He better act his age. And he ought to reveal a little wisdom, because that's what gray hair should indicate. Now, friends, as we come to the 21st chapter of the book of Proverbs... And chapter 21 now is one of the great chapters in Proverbs. In fact, all of them are great. But this is especially so, I feel. And I think we'll see it as we get into it. Now, the first verse I'm reading in Proverbs 21. The king's heart is in the hand of Jehovah. As the rivulets of water, he turneth it whithersoever he will. Now, it doesn't make any difference how powerful a man may be. He may have been a pharaoh in Egypt. He may have been a king of Babylon. He may have been the emperor of Rome. He may have been a Caesar. He may have been an Alexander the Great or a Napoleon. He may have been a Joe Stalin or an Adolf Hitler. Uh, whoever comes along next, and there'll be one. You can put this down. He cannot act in independence of God. He may think he can. We today in this country have a declaration of independence, and right now it's being used for us to declare our independence of God. He's the last one that we thought had any rule over us. We believe in liberty, so today we've declared we are free of God. But you want to know something? We're not free of God. No man is. You cannot act independently. The king's heart is in the hand of Jehovah. And God's going to turn him just like he turns a little babbling brook that comes down the mountainside. It will take this course This year, next year, it'll go down another course. Who does that? God does that. That's not chance. And this king, or this ruler, or this person cannot act independently of God. And I wish we had more men today in public office who expressed a dependence upon God and showed it in their lives. And quit telling us that they've got the solution for all the problems of the world. Now, they haven't and that is misrepresentation for any man to say that. No man is independent of Almighty God, and we need to recognize our dependence upon Him. Oh, may this country be called back before it's too late to a dependence upon God. And we need a new declaration, but this time a declaration of dependence upon Almighty God. How important that is. And we trust that there may be a turning back to God. And it can only come, according to my book, through the Word of God. Now, let me move on down. Verse 2, Every way of man is right in his own eyes, but Jehovah pondereth the hearts. And here again is this matter of man's self-righteousness. There's so much said about that in Proverbs. As I've put in my notes, man rationalizes and God scrutinizes. God looks at your heart. And what you've attempted to do is to paint up the surface and have the outside looking nice. I'm a member of a church. I teach a class even. And I serve on a committee. And I'm very active. Yes, but what about your heart? God pondereth the heart. And he says the heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? And have you been to the Lord Jesus and have spoken to him about your desperate condition? And he's the great physician. He's a heart specialist. He gives you a new heart. He's the first one that went in this business of a heart transplant, a heart that can be obedient unto him. Now, verse 3 to do righteousness and judgment is more acceptable to Jehovah than sacrifice. Well, (laughs) here again we have that tremendous truth that you can go through a religious ritual. Now, remember that in the Old Testament, that sacrifice pointed to Jesus Christ. And our Lord, you remember how he denounced the religious rulers, the Pharisees, His language is withering. He blanched them. May I say to you, he scorched them. And he said what they were. On the outside, he says, you look like a beautiful monument. Inside, it's dead men's bones. You're like a pretty golden dish on the outside. Inside, why, there's never been a dishwasher that's cleaned the thing out. My, he went after them, called them a generation of vipers. And God says, I'll have mercy and not sacrifice. God says, even the sacrifice of Christ will transform you. And if it doesn't transform you, to bring good works, even at the same time, speaking of the fact that you're trusting Jesus when you're not trusting him. I tell you, this gets down my friend, to the marrow and to the bone of our souls. And it's very important. Again, let me repeat what we said last time. If you were convicted of being a Christian and brought into court, would there be enough evidence to convict you? My, that gets to us, ought to. Verse 4, a high look and a proud heart, and the tillage of the lawless is sin. Now, a high look. Do you know that if you walked into church on Sunday morning and you see Miss Jones or Mr. Smith, and you just turned your head, you know, so you wouldn't have to speak to them. I was in a group the other day, and there's a man there that has said some unlovely things about me. He acted as if he didn't see me at all. High look proud heart, and the tillage of the lawless is sin. Now, may I say to you, that high look that you even gave in church, maybe nobody noticed it. Maybe the individual didn't pay any attention to it. But God did. And God said, you just well have gone out and got drunk. In my eyes, there's no difference between the two. It's just as bad. Of course, we don't measure it that way. Now he says the tillage of the lawless is sin. Now, anybody would say, you see that man out yonder plowing? My, he's an industrious man. And he ought to be merited, given a merit for that. God says that even that evil man with an evil heart, even when he's plowing, God says in his sight, it's sin. Now, that means, sinner, you can't give anything to God. I ought to make it clear as we go along on this program. When we mention the fact that we depend upon listeners, we really mean Christians. I don't think God can bless a gift from any person who's unsaved at all. Years ago in Dallas, Texas, a brewery down there sent, I think it was, $50,000 to a certain Christian school sent another $50,000 to a certain college of another denomination and then sent 50000 to a hospital of another group. The college, I guess it was two schools, they returned it and they would not keep it. They would not accept it from the brewery. The hospital did. And a comment was made on that, that they felt the colleges had done well in returning it. Why? Because God can bless it. God can't use it. Now, today it may be that these institutions would have accepted it and kept it. I don't know. But in that day, the word was out that they didn't keep it at all. And I always felt that that was a very good thing. And have you ever noticed what God said to the nation Israel? Over in the 10th chapter He said, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved, for I bear them record. They have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves to the righteousness of God. Now, when you are going about to establish your own righteousness, God says it's sin, the righteousness of man. Is filthy rags in God's sight. That's what he says. And this is the demonstration of it. Now, I move on down in this chapter. In verse 5, "...the thoughts of the diligent tend only to plenteous, but to everyone that is hasty only to want. The getting of treasures by a lying tongue is a vanity tossed to and fro of them that seek death. The robbery of the lawless... "...shall destroy them because they refuse to do judgment." You see what he's saying here, that actually riches that are accumulated in an honest way, God can use them. There's no sin in being rich. It's how you got your money. That's the important thing. And God sees to it that your riches, and you may be as rich as any man today... And you will not be able to enjoy it. Do you get the impression that there are certain rich men that are not really having a very good time? Their riches are really not what they need. They need something else. The story is told about the Arab that got lost out in the desert. And he had no food, no water, and he was about to die. And the poor fellow saw a package that had dropped off a caravan. And he thought, my, there probably is dates in that, food in that, and maybe a can of something to drink. And he picked that package up and eagerly and hungrily and trembling, he tore it open and looked at it. And then he dropped it in great disappointment. You know what he said? Why, he says, it's only pearls. Yes, at that time he didn't need pearls, although those pearls were worth a fortune. He didn't need them. He just dropped them. May I say to you, you can get rich. God says that won't do you a bit of good unless you make it in the right way, unless that you use it for his glory. My, what a proverb this is. Verse 8, "...the way of a guilty man is very crooked, but as for the pure..." His work is right. In other words, your life will demonstrate what kind of a person you really are. If you are right with God, why, it's going to be revealed in your life. Now, verse 9, It's better to dwell in a corner of the housetop than with a brawling woman in a wide house. Now, a brawling woman that seeks to run the whole place and is loud, well, very frankly, it'd be better if you just had a little corner up in an attic somewhere. And that is true. And I told a story about the man in Nashville, the retired pastor of the church. He and I would make a trip down to City Hall. He was a member of our church, and he always would get him out of jail. He'd be arrested for drunkenness, this man would. And we got him out again and again. And then one time... This retired preacher said something I'll never forget. He said, you know, if I was married to the woman he's married to, I'd drink also. And Very candidly, it's better to dwell in the corner of the housetop. And I'd turn that around and say it'd be the same thing for the woman that could be married to the wrong husband. My wife and I were talking the other night about some folk we know, and we said how sorry we felt for the wife to be married to a man like that. There are illustrations of that in the Scripture. Job, you know, didn't do so well with a wife. And David, you remember, was married to a daughter of Saul. We've always condemned David. But he had no fellowship, and there wasn't any real love in that marriage at all. You remember, she ridiculed David and told him, said, you made a fool of yourself when you brought the ark in, dancing before the ark like that, while you were disgraceful. And believe me, if you show a little enthusiasm for God, why, there'll be a great many people that'll be embarrassed. Now, verse 11, "...when the scorner is punished, the simple is made wise. And when the wise is instructed, he receiveth knowledge." That's very important to note, that you learn lessons, and we should learn lessons from the experience of others around us. Verse 13, Whoso stoppeth his ears at the cry of the poor, he also shall cry himself, but shall not be answered. Now, God has said that. That's either true or it's not true. And I think that you'll find it true. We could give present-day illustrations in public life, but I'll not do that. Verse 14, A gift in secret pacifieth anger, and a reward in the bosom strong wrath. And you remember that when Jacob was returning back, he knew Esau had robbed him and thought Esau was his enemy because he'd heard Esau intended to kill him. Well, the fact of the matter is that he sent gifts ahead, you know, and to pacify him. Well, I want to say that he didn't need to do that. God had taken care of that. But that actually is not the way that it's done. And you know, there are people that say today... Well, I'm going to be generous because I'll be rewarded. Or I'm going to forgive somebody something because if I do that, why, it'll make me feel better. Jane Marchant wrote a little poem that illustrates that and that sort of thing is wrong. Listen to this. If I forgive an injury because resenting would poison me, I may feel noble I may feel splendid, but it isn't exactly what Christ intended. No, it isn't. We're to forgive why? Because God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven us. That's the reason we're to be kind, tender-hearted, forgiven what not because it makes you feel better. Low motives are given, and then, in verse fifteen, it's a joy to the just to do what's right, but it's the ruin to the workers of iniquity. The man that wandereth out of the way of understanding shall abide in the assembly of the dead. God says you don't rehabilitate criminals. The thing to do is to get the little fellas in these crime-ridden areas and give them the word of God, friends. We're doing it the wrong end, according to God. And I somehow or another feel that God's right about all of this. And here is a verse that I wish that I could spend time with, but can't do it. He that loveth pleasure shall be a poor man. He that loveth wine and oil shall not be rich. Now we have glorified the theater. And as a result, the philosophy that is taught on television and taught in plays and in books has got our entire society, the great principles, moral principles, everything is turned upside down. Now at one time, Even in the court of a king, a jester or an entertainer was called a fool. I don't think that's been changed in God's sight at all. But today entertainers are sacred cows. They are the ones that are popular. They get on these talk programs and glorify themselves and one another. God says, and still says it, "...he that loveth pleasure shall be a poor man." He that loveth wine and oil shall not be rich. And there have been several that have committed suicide, and I won't mention names. And one man made this statement, I'm bored with life, another is, it's not worth living. (laughs) And another comedian, when he was dying, his friends gathered around for him to say something funny. He looked at them in stark fear and dread and said, this is not funny. No, my friend, we've got the thing turned upside down, and no wonder the television today is like the wilderness of Moab. Nothing really to see. And it becomes pretty boring to look at it. Now, I want to mention this verse 18. The lawless shall be a ransom for the righteous. But that's been turned around. And Jesus, he was the righteous, and he was made a ransom for us the lawless, the ones that do not do good. There's none that doeth good. No, not one. I'm reading now Proverbs 21, verse 22. A wise man scaleth the city of the mighty and casteth down the strength of the confidence thereof. What he's saying here, he is saying that wisdom is superior to brute force. "...and that wisdom that cometh from above." And that a man may be able to put up an impregnable fortress and think that it cannot be taken, and yet there will be a man smart enough to figure how to get in there. And you remember the illustration I use of old Belshazzar inside the walls of Babylon. In fact, it had an inner wall, and that was around the palace." He thought he was perfectly safe because those walls of Babylon just couldn't be penetrated. And, of course, there were men on guard. But you see, Gobrias, a general in the enemy's camp, was an engineer. And that branch of the Euphrates that went through the city, more or less like a canal, why, he cut it off and put it back in the mainstream. And then under the wall where the river flowed, he marched his army. That army flowed into the city, and the city was taken before they knew it. Napoleon, you remember, made the statement, God is always on the side of the bigger battalions. He's wrong, because at Waterloo, he should have won. He was a very brilliant general. But you see, he wasn't quite smart enough, and he had the ability to move artillery speedily. But what happened was... It got bogged down in the mud. It was old General Mud that really stopped Napoleon as he went toward Warsaw that time. And what happened was that the cavalry just stumbled over and fell over the artillery because it was stuck in the mud. So it's a matter of what God is saying here. That a great many men not only depend on wealth but upon brute force, but that will never be a good enough protection. Now, in verse 23, he says, "...whoso keepeth his mouth and his tongue keepeth his soul from troubles." And again, it's this matter of using the tongue aright. Because he's already said, as you know, that if you want friends, you must show yourself friendly. And that would mean that you do have to talk, but you need to be very careful. And we do need friends, There's a great deal said here, about friends and about enemies. And it was Emerson who put it like this. He says, "...he who has a thousand friends has not a friend to spare, and he who has one enemy will meet him everywhere." That is so true that we do need to show ourselves friendly, but we need to be very careful that we control our tongue. And that is the thing he's emphasizing here. Now he says, verse 24, "...proud and haughty scorner is his name, who dealeth in proud wrath." I think that is a tremendous statement. God has apparently more to say here about the abuse and use of the tongue and more about the proud than anything else. These are two things, that uncontrolled tongue, that lying tongue, that gossiping tongue, and that proud look. God says he hates it. And he makes no apology for saying that. Now, verse 25, we read, "...the desire of the slothful killeth him, for his hands refuse to labor." And there's quite a bit been said here about the lazy man. And slothful, S-L-O-T-H-F-U-L, slothful is the lazy man. And then verse 26, he coveteth greedily all the day long, but the righteous giveth and spareth not. And that lazy man, he spends his time in covetousness, and he tries to use devious devices to get a hold of money without working. And there are a lot of folk that are doing that, of course. And the thing is that The righteous man is not thinking so much of getting as of giving. And God will bless him. That is the thought here. Then in verse 27, the sacrifice of the lawless is abomination, how much more when he bringeth it with a wicked purpose. Now, God says a lawless man, and a lawless man is one that has not bowed himself to God and come God's way. There's a way that seemeth right unto a man, and that is the lawless. He goes his way and ignores God's way and repudiates it. Now, that man, it doesn't mean he's not religious. He may join the church, and he generally does. Puts up quite a front. And so he goes to church and sings the hymns and may even pray, I don't know. But when he brings it, even with a wicked purpose... Suppose that he makes a gift, and he has a mixed motive, a low motive in doing it. That even makes it worse, and that is the meaning of the proverb. Then verse 28, "...a false witness shall perish, and a man that heareth shall speak constantly. A lawless man hardeneth his face, but as for the upright he establisheth his ways." Have you ever noticed that in the trial of the Lord Jesus, this false witness appears? And wouldn't you hate to have been one of those false witnesses? Let me turn over to chapter 26 of Matthew and read at verse 59. Listen to this. Now the chief priests and elders and all the council sought "...false witness against Jesus to put him to death, but found none, yea, though many false witness came, yet found they none, at the last came two false witnesses." And the other false witnesses, they bore testimony, but it wasn't pertinent at all. But these two, they really lied. Now go over to chapter 27, verse 11. And Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, saying, Art thou the king of the Jews? And Jesus said unto him, Thou sayest. In other words, you were right. And then verse 12, And when he was accused of the chief priests and elders, he answered nothing. Then said Pilate unto him, Hearest thou not how many things they witness against thee? And he answered him to never a word insomuch. The governor marveled greatly. And you remember John tells us that he took the Lord Jesus on the inside and actually asked for his cooperation so he could let him off. But he was too much of a politician to let him off. He wanted to stay in office over in Israel. And so he finally gave in. But he knew these were false witnesses. Now, that is a trial that stands on the pages of history as being the most ignominious of all. Wouldn't you hate to have been one of those false witnesses? He shall perish. That is the statement here in the book of Proverbs. Now, verse 30, "...there is no wisdom, nor understanding, nor counsel against Jehovah." Now, this is a remarkable verse of Scripture. The fact of the matter is, it is so remarkable that I want to turn over to a verse in Second Corinthians that may have escaped your attention because it's a remarkable verse and it's found over in Second Corinthians, the 13th chapter, at verse 8. For we can do nothing against the truth, but for the truth. There's no wisdom, nor understanding, nor counsel against Jehovah. Now, we get alarmed today, at least I used to. I can remember that I went to a liberal college and liberal seminary, and I thought that my ministry was sort of like ringing the fire bell every Sunday morning to defend the Word of God. And these two verses were called to my attention. There is no wisdom, nor understanding, nor counsel against Jehovah. Don't you know that God's going to be able to defend Himself? And He'll be able to defend His Word. And here we're told we can do nothing against the truth, but for the truth. Now, if you want to do something, do it positively. Accentuate the positive. And then let the negative alone. You don't need to defend the Bible. God will take care of that. He's asked us to proclaim it. And so I have a letter of a man, I must confess, I have filed it over here in the round file, which we call the waste basket here. And I didn't even read it all. He is trying to show to me that the Bible is not the Word of God. To begin with, and I say it very, very candidly. it's a most asinine argument. But I say, ho, ho, hum. Huh. Let's go on to something else because of the fact that that man apparently has a hang-up, and that hang-up is some sin in his life. For if he will turn to Christ, he does want to get rid of his sin, if he does want to save you he'll turn to Christ, it'll be amazing how those problems will be smoothed out that seem to disturb him. And after all, they're not too important at all. Then he goes on to say here, A horse is prepared against the day of battle, but safety is of Jehovah. In other words, David learned, and he made the statement, Though a host encamp against me, yet will I not fear. Well, why? Because God would deliver him. And you remember, old Asa cried out, and he said, Lord, it's nothing with thee to help. "...whether with many or with them that have no power. Help us, O Lord our God, for we rest on Thee, and in Thy name we go against this multitude. O Lord, Thou art our God, let not man prevail against Thee." How wonderful that is to trust God. The horse is prepared against the day of battle, and it's well to be prepared. "...a strong man armed keepeth his house, the Lord Jesus said." But safety is a Jehovah. You keep your powder dry, but be sure your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ and you're resting in Him. Now, as we come to chapter 22, this is a chapter we'll more or less breeze through if you do not mind. And he says here, a good name, and the word good could be left out. A name is rather to be chosen than great riches and loving favor, rather than silver and gold. That means a name. What kind of a name? It's quite interesting that David, you know, had a group of mighty men. And these mighty men of David were actually, they were great men. And they made a name for themselves. We're told concerning one of them, Benaiah. In verse twenty of Second Samuel twenty-three, it says, "And Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, the son of a valiant man of Kabzeel, who had done many acts, he slew two lion-like men of Moab. He went down also and slew a lion in the midst of a pit in time of snow. A lot of people don't go to church when it snows, but this man slew a lion." And we're told here, verse 22, these things did Benaiah the son of Jehoiada and had the name among three mighty men. He was put up there in a class with just three of them as the top echelon of David's mighty man. And a name is rather to be chosen than great riches. You want to make a name. And a name is not just what your parents called you when you were born. It's the name that you make in a group. What are you known as? If you're known as a child of God, and I revert back to what we've said before, you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Then we have in verse 2 here, "...the rich and poor meet together, Jehovah is the maker of them all." Now, that means that before God, all men are on the same plane. Now, if you want to talk about a universal brotherhood of man, you be very careful what you say. The Bible doesn't teach that. But the Bible does teach that all of us are a member of a human family and that we all have a depraved nature, a nature that's alienated from God. And we better even watch each other to tell the truth because we can't be trusted. And we are sinners. And God has had to do something about it. That is, if He wants to save us. And He has done something about it. Now, it can be said, "...He hath made of one blood all nations of man, for to dwell on the face of the earth." And we all stand on that basis before God. But we become the children of God. That is, the sons of God by faith in Jesus Christ. Not because you're a human being, but because you have put your faith in Jesus Christ. And John mentions the fact of the children of God and the children of the devil. They're two families. The Lord Jesus said of the religious rulers, you of your father, the devil. So they're two families actually in the world. And the universal fatherhood of God is not really true. Now, by creation, and that's what he's talking about here, because the new birth is not the teaching of the Old Testament. Now we have verse 3, a prudent man foreseeth evil, hideth himself. But the simple pass on and are punished. In other words, the man that's smart, do you want to be smart? Do you want to be that then for goodness sake, make arrangements for the future? And all these insurance companies say, now you want to prepare for the future. Make arrangements for your old age. Make arrangements to take care of your children and that sort of thing. Yes, but what about the next step, brother? What about the future? And there's a great deal here that is said about this in this particular chapter. And I'm going to probably just emphasize that rather than to go into some of these other. And that is just simply this. We need to make it very clear that when a man steps over and he's made no preparation, that man is a very foolish man. And the Scripture calls him a fool. And I will tell this, and this will be about what we're going to take up in this particular chapter here. And that is, when I was a young man in Nashville, Tennessee, I was very far from the Lord for a while. I remember a young couple, they were a fine young couple, they belonged to a rich family, at a dance one night and they announced their engagement. And then later on they were married. They made the society page and all that. And they had bought a very lovely southern home. Big pillars out in front, white columns there. And they had searched everywhere for antiques and they had furnished that place so lovely. And then the day came for their marriage. Oh, they had worked so hard preparing that home. And then they were married, and they took their wedding trip. On their honeymoon, they went over to the Smokies, the Great Smokies, over in East Tennessee and North Carolina. And leaving Gatlinburg and going up into the mountains, they went around a curve. And they were hit, knocked off the highway. Down a precipice, the thing caught fire. They were both killed. I used to, later on, after I was saved, I'd go by that home for years. It was not even occupied. The parents just closed the door and left it there. I'd ride by there and I'd think, my, what preparation they made to live down here. And they never lived in it one hour, not even one minute. And yet they went into eternity unprepared. May I say to you, this is a tremendous chapter here, this chapter 22 that we're looking at. And it speaks of these things that are so important of making preparation for eternity. And then we have here, we're to train up a child concerning the way he should go when he's old, he'll not depart from it. That's in verse 6. Well, what he's saying is just simply this, the child has a way that God wants him to go, and you to find that out. You're not to bring up the child in the way you think he should go, but the way God wants him to go. And that is the meaning there. That means the parents should find that out. And then we find here in verse 8, "...he that soweth iniquity shall reap vanity, and the rod of his wrath shall fail. He that hath a bountiful eye shall be blessed, for he giveth of his bread to the poor." And that is a verse that has occurred again and again. And here we have that lazy man again in verse 13. The lazy man saith, There is a lion without I shall be slain in the street. Believe me, he has a lot of excuses. It's cold outside, and he's not going to plow because it's cold. And there are many other excuses. And now he says there's a lion out there. And I think he's lying, by the way, about that also. But he's lazy. And then verse 15, foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of correction shall drive it far from him. Discipline is needed, but we need to be very careful that we not provoke our children to anger. That is because we are angry. Verse 28 of the 22nd chapter, I read, Remove not the ancient landmark which thy fathers have set, Now, when God put these people in the land, why, he gave not only to the nation Israel that land over there, but we sometimes forget that he gave to each tribe a particular section in that land, and he gave to each family in each tribe a particular parcel of land, and they were to put up certain boundary markers. They were generally stones, boundary markers. Down in front of my house, in the sidewalk, there's a little brass circle at one end of my lot and a little brass circle at the other end of the lot, so that you know where it begins and where it ends. And I have a notion that that was put there way back when that was an avocado grove, and it was put there when the subdivision was made. And it was done to just make sure I stayed within my lot. Now, God made this statement concerning each parcel of land. In Deuteronomy 19, 14, he says, "...thou shalt not remove thy neighbor's landmark, which they of old time have set in thine inheritance, which thou shalt inherit in the land that the Lord thy God giveth thee to possess it." You see that a man might, when no one's looking and Maybe his neighbor's getting old and his eyesight failing. He just slips that stone over a couple of feet, and he gets two more feet in his parcel of land. And now God says that that is not to be done. Of course, it would be totally dishonest. Now, we have a wonderful spiritual application of this, and you will know that I'm a real square when I say what I'm going to say now. I believe that we have seen the great landmarks of the Christian faith removed. And it's been removed by what was called once modernism. It's called liberalism today. And because of a liberal viewpoint, they say, well, now this old landmark, this doctrine that was taught in the days of Paul, it's not relevant. And we are very smart. We are very clever people. We've learned so much, so we don't need the doctrine of the plenary inspiration of the Scriptures. We can do away with that, and we will do away with the doctrine of the deity of Christ. Now, the distinguishing doctrines of the Christian faith have been pretty well washed out by a great many of the old-line denominations on the basis that we must come up to date. Now, I want to say this. Instead of moving forward and removing landmarks, we need to start moving backward and get back to a lot of the old ancient landmarks. You see, those ancient landmarks made this nation great that you and I live in. They've been removed, not on the land. Maybe removed there, I don't know. But I think they do a pretty good job of marking out the particular parcels of ground. But certainly today, the great landmarks, the moral values, the spiritual truths, the Bible basis, all of that's been removed. And all you have to do is look around you today, and you just hear everyone on every side telling what he thinks the solution is. And he always comes up with a sociological or a psychological solution. No one comes up, apparently, at least the television I listen to, they never come up with a biblical solution. I say we need to get back to the good old landmarks that we had at the beginning. And that'll let you know the direction that you're going. And then this chapter closed with a very wonderful word, commending the man that's diligent. Seest thou a man diligent in his work? He shall stand before kings, he shall not stand before mean men. In other words, God says that he will reward and intends to reward the man that is diligent. You remember the thing the Lord Jesus commended and will command men for in eternity is, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. You've been diligent. It won't be the amount of work you've done. It won't be the number of people that you've spoken to. It won't be how hard you've worked. But how faithful have you been to what God has called you to do? And it may be a mother to her, just a little boy in the home. She's faithful to it. Moses' mother was that way, and she's been rewarded for it, been put in the Word of God. And we find that that's the thing. God will reward them for A man being found faithful, that is the thing that is important for us to see. And you remember that Paul put it like this. We always read it, not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Let me give you that whole passage and probably a better translation. That is, it brings out the meaning. As to your brotherly love, have family affection one to another for your code of honor deferring to one another. Never flag in zeal. Be aglow or fervent with the Spirit serving the Lord. It all adds up to being faithful to God. And that's what we should be.